Hello, Lion Cook Nation. This is Ray DeLucci with the Lion Cook Thoughts Podcast. And on this episode, I get to interview Chef Jenny Dorsey. Chef Dorsey is the owner of Studio, or founder, I should say, of Studio Atau, which is a restaurant that deals with uh, dining in a different type of way. Uh, it's more of like a live, it's more of a lively dining. And she uses VR experiences and she addresses topics um, on certain cultures and whatnot that she feels are important. And I really think to start that it's a cool way of interacting with diners to use the latest technology such as virtual reality to maybe give a different message while dining. And I think this interactive and lively type of dining is something that a lot of chefs will adopt. And I think Chef Dorsey is doing a really good job of it. She is also a co-host on the Why Food podcast, which I highly suggest you taking a look at because that podcast is all about people who maybe didn't start out in the industry, but then came into the industry and obviously the name Why Food. And there's a lot of just interesting stories of people who found their way into the food industry for one way or another. And they've just, you know, found their niche and found what they love to do. And now, you know, Chef Jenny records them. Uh, she's also done a bunch of different uh, classes or just like work on the side in terms of building her own personal company and building her own projects. And she's worked in some of the best restaurants in the country, including Atera and Atelier Kren. And she's just an all around um, talented chef. Her food she puts out on her Instagram is so beautiful. Um, definitely check out her Instagram at Chef Jenny Dorsey. And I just, I, I'm blown away by her work and the work ethic and the time and commitment she makes. There's so many different things and she's able to pull it off in such a sincere and just well thought out way. And I feel like if I'm going to be a chef uh, who impacts the industry, it would be someone like her, someone who has my hand in a lot of different things and is able to you know, make impacts in different parts of the industry. So I'm very excited for you to hear our interview. And the first part is her introducing herself and talking about her experience in Michelin kitchens. And as we get into the back half of the episode, we actually kind of got off of script. So that's why this is going to be a two-part episode. The second part being recorded a little bit later in the summer as we ran out of time in this uh, segment of recording. Because we got into the topic of Michelin kitchens and all about, you know, fair pay and the long hours and the mental health awareness that we're starting to talk about in the industry. And it was a conversation that I really couldn't let go. I really just, I was, you know, we got brought up and I was like, all right, let's talk about this. And we were both happy with what we talked about. And like I said, um, it's going to, there's going to be a part two where she actually gets to talk about what she does. Um, But the reason I think it's important to talk about this is because, you know, I've been saying a lot that if you're a cook and you work in a restaurant, you offer value. You're worth more than probably what you're getting paid. You are worth something. Um, And I feel like a lot of the industry, um, a lot of cooks feel like they're not worth a lot. And that's so not true. And I just want that message to get out there that you are worth more than you think to um, any organization if you're working for them. And I just really want that message to come out. And but. With that, I just want to say this. I know that Chef Jenny loves Michelin restaurants, and I know I love Michelin restaurants. And I know in this episode, it might sound like we don't. I love fine dining. When I first got to the Culinary Institute of America, my world was changed when I found out who Thomas Keller was, and I found out what fine dining is, and the, what the French Laundry was, and what the Michelin award or rating system was, and what the top 50 list was. My life was changed. I mean, I love fine dining. I love food in its highest art form. I still go to eat at fine dining restaurants. And I bring up a point in this, you know, should I be doing that if I'm kind of conflicted with some things? And I just want to preface this with saying that I love fine dining and I don't think Michelin star restaurants are evil. I don't think because chefs have stages, they're evil uh, that they don't pay. It's just simply what the industry is right now. 
and we are commenting on it. And so when we go into this episode, I don't, I just, I just don't want you all to think that I'm knocking on any restaurant because I'm not. But I do see an issue. I know a lot of cooks, including myself, when I first started culinary school and for about two years into culinary school, my whole goal was to get a Michelin star and be on the top 50 list. And that's an issue because that can lead to a lot of bad things. For one, my whole career path was dependent on someone else's opinion. And I know when we cook, that's dependent on people's opinions as well. But like, you're able to kind of control that by getting better and putting out great food. But the Michelin Guide is a rating system, and the 50 best list is a rating system. And I feel that it's very unhealthy to have your whole um, your whole career path just based solely on that. I feel like, for me, why I'm a chef is I love feeding people. I love feeding people and giving them great experiences. And, you know, they might have a crappy day or a crappy week, and they're able to come in and eat uh, play in my food and they're able to just enjoy it. And so I know whenever I put a dish out um, in the past, I know that I'm helping someone throughout their life, whether, you know, it's just a celebration and we're making a memory for them or they're really having a rough time and they just needed a place to go and eat some great food and relax and get away from everything. And that's why I'm a chef. And I, I'm also a chef because I love the people in this industry. And I will always speak for the people in this industry when needed in terms of trying to see how we can benefit them. And so when I talk about this, I really just want you all to know that I, I, I love every single one of you, whether you cook in a casual restaurant or a fine dining restaurant. And I know that if you are in a fine dining restaurant, it's tough. Um, you know, I, like I said, I grew up in a low income family and I really, you might say, oh, it's because of money that he um, left Michelin or, you know, he's, it's not that. I really enjoy the podcast and I really enjoy everything else I'm doing in food. I love everything right now that I'm doing, but I also think I have a duty to speak on this. And I feel like Chef Jenny had a duty to speak on this as well, because seeing as she's worked in these in restaurants and I feel like that's what, that's what we talk about. You know, we talk about why are these talented artists cooks getting paid 14 to $15? Why you know, are these restaurants, like the best restaurants in the world, they have all these free stages. And I, you know, the concept of staging, yes, I've done it. And yes, I do feel like working for free for some time is good. I know Gary B is a proponent of that, going to work for free for a little bit. Um, but I feel like when you're in the restaurant industry, you already have so much anguish sometimes and so much stress that when you get out of work and you still have to worry about bills and figuring how to, you're going to make ends meet, And, you know, it's just a lot to think about and it's a lot to pile on. And I think that's where you get a lot of like people not taking care of themselves or getting addiction problems or getting into mental health issues. And so this is what we talked about. Why, you know, what could change, what these restaurants could be built on and what we see going forward and what we should be doing about it. And I don't think there's an easy answer. I don't think there's a clear answer, but there definitely has to be something um and i don't think we would be we wouldn't be talking about this if people didn't feel the way we talk about it so like if i didn't get messages from cooks saying hey i love what you're saying i work in a michelin kitchen i'm feeling really burnt out but i love this dining but i i just can't convince them to pay me more than what they're paying me and i can't make ends meet and i think i have to leave that's heartbreaking to me and i feel for the people that message me that and i don't know what to say i really don't because i know i took my path but my path isn't for everyone Um, so this is what I'm saying. This is the conversation I've had with Chef Jenny, and I think this is a good one. And this isn't to say that any Michelin kitchen with stagiaires is evil, or that any Michelin kitchen that pays their cooks the minimum wage is evil. This is how the industry is. 
And this is just a start of a conversation of how we change that. So I just wanted to give that to you before we start the interview. I want to thank Chef Jenny so much for doing this. I'm so excited for part two when we actually get to talk about what she does as a chef and the impact she's having on the industry because I'm just blown away by her work. And I'm just very excited for this. And Line Cook Nation, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. And I just want you to know that this is the start of a conversation. And at the end of the day, this will always be a conversation. And you're able to have your own opinion. And my, I'm able to have my own opinion. And I'd love to have a talk about this, a dialogue. And let's keep this going. I don't want this just to be Ray's opinion and Jenny's opinion. And that's it. So please let us know what you think. And as always, thank you for tuning in. And here we go. All right, Chef. Well, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Uh, if you just want to start by introducing yourself and, you know, just kind of giving us a little bit of background of who you are. Yeah. Um, thanks for having me. My name is Jenny Dorsey. I'm a professional chef, uh, writer, and artist based in New York City. Awesome. And I guess this is what I ask everyone, but uh, I guess where are you from and what was food like when you were growing up? So um, my I'm Chinese American. I'm a first generation. So I was born in Shanghai, but I uh, grew up in the States. So I'm pretty American. I grew up in Seattle with my okay. family. They still live in the Seattle area. And growing up, I definitely ate a lot of like mostly Chinese food mixed with, you know, my school lunches and such. And I think our, our families kind of got to a point where uh, it it was like trying to, still trying to eat the Chinese food that my, my parents grew up with. My mom's side is from Shanghai. My dad's side is from Shanxi. But also they liked the stuff that was in the Pacific Northwest. So we were eating a lot of salmon, a lot of seafood. Um, it's kind of like exploring what we could grow in the backyard. My grandma always grew a lot of this one plant called Shepherd's Purse, which is really hard to find stateside. But it's a pretty popular, it's actually a weed. So it should theoretically be easy to grow. But I still haven't been able to grow it. Um, uh, it's like a really delicious, like green herb sort of thing that grows pretty frequently in the Shanghai area. And so my okay. grandma would grow that in the backyard. So it was kind of like an, a mix of things that we liked that we remembered and also just bringing in stuff from the surrounding areas. And what, um, what, like, what's the flavor for profile of that herb? Uh, I would say it's, hmm, I would like if you had to really like substitute it out, you could say like, yeah, it kind of tastes like spinach, but it like really doesn't. It's like way better than spinach. Um, I think it's a little bit more like, floral is not the right word, aromatic. It's a little bit more aromatic than spinach, it, and, but it also has like a little bit of like a, like a warming, warming spice sort of undernote. So okay. it's just like, I don't know, it gives something a little extra. Uh, to the food it has its own kind of like special taste it's hard kind of hard to describe but it's it's all in all it's relatively mild but you can just tell when it's there like it's like not like a punch in your face like it's there but it's like hmm, something is different about this sort of it's there yeah yeah and what kind of dishes i guess would you use it in um mostly wonton soup that's like the big thing but um just kind of like wherever you might use it as uh some sort of filling like it's usually it's not often served i guess like by itself it's usually like mixed with something else usually like a protein okay and so have you you said you've tried planting it what like what issues did you find in trying to grow it well i'm just bad at growing things i think so i had these seeds <laughs> shipped from hong kong it took like three months for them to get here planted them they sprouted and then of course birds ate all my seeds like after they sprouted what? um yeah and then i so i planted another batch and my dog knocked it over. Um, oh. And then by the time that was done, that was like a couple months later, it's no longer like the right season because you have such a short growing season here in um, New York. 
that it was like too hot. And so then they never sprouted. So now, I mean, I guess right now is the ideal season to start planting again, but I'm moving soon. So I kind of given up on the matter. And apparently you can find it like growing like like weeds on the side of the street but i'm just afraid to pick them because i'm not a forager so i'm like yeah. what if i pick a poisonous plant and kill myself so i'm i just need to consult one of my farmer friends to have to go like walk around town with him and have him pick it for me yeah definitely that's that's a wise decision <laughs> uh what's your dog what kind of dog do you have um i have a pit bull who's 12 or almost 12 and then i have a little rat terrier that's about five nice awesome uh so how i guess how did you start getting into cooking like when did it become something that you were like oh wow i could actually start making a living out of this or this could be my career choice um i moved into food after i changed careers i used to be in management consulting after i graduated from college um, i graduated with a finance degree and thought that you know like i was going to work in corporate forever or climb the corporate ladder that's like fully what i was planning on doing um mm. found myself um, in the fashion and luxury goods department of uh, Accenture, which is like a big tech and management consulting firm. Anyway, um, that seemed really, really cool and glamorous at the time. It was a really difficult group to get into, especially as an entry level analyst. So I worked really hard to get in that group. And, you know, it, it's kind of that funny thing when you, you know, that's been your goal for so long, you get somewhere and you realize like it doesn't make you very happy. And it's also hard to admit that it doesn't make you very happy because you work so hard to get here and you sacrifice so much and all of that stuff. Uh, so it was just kind of this weird, like, um, self-reckoning moment of like, okay, do I want to just keep living this lie that I'm happy with who I am and what I'm doing because I've worked um, my butt off to get to this place. I uh, Getting it to uh, New York um, was really hard in and of itself coming from Seattle. Usually they don't hire from my school. And so mm -hmm. it, it was a difficult decision, but I was just, and I just was so unhappy that I had to do something about it. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I always really loved food, but I was also too afraid to like really make the commitment to go into food. So I instead applied for business school. <laughs> Um, okay. got an early decision to business school at Columbia Business School. And so I had essentially nine months before I actually had to start at Columbia and decided to go to culinary school. Um, there's a program here in New York at the Institute of Culinary Education where you can complete a diploma program for uh, in like nine months. I think you can actually do it in as short as six months, but I did a nine month program. So I literally finished culinary school right before I started at Columbia. And I thought okay. that I would just go into, go into, you know, management consulting again after I go to Columbia, blah, blah. And like a, a semester into Columbia, I was like, I, I can't do this. You know, I really think that food is the thing that I want to do. I need to figure out how to do it. So um, went left and went off to go figure, figure it out. Okay. And what was the experience like at uh, the Institute of Culinary Edu Education? Um, it's a pretty short program. So I would say it's probably not in depth as, you know, if, you went to CIA, but it is interesting in the fact that, A, I loved all the people I went to school with, like absolutely fantastic people, like really changed my perspective on, you know, what friendship looks like, the kind of people that you want to surround yourself, you know, what kind of like energy that you want to put in your life. Um, mm -hmm. I thought that it was a good, like, it's a good crash course on most of the things that you need to know, like basic, basic techniques, basic cuisines and all that. But because it's such a short period of time, like you just really, you don't really understand what you're doing um, yeah. when you go to a restaurant. That's just kind of how it is. And so we can have a conversation about if culinary school is worth it all day long, because it's also an expensive program. But at the end of the day, it doesn't replace 
like going into a restaurant and working and understanding how just how things run because culinary school is a very different environment that being said because it's a much more relaxed environment and you have time to you know go home and like read I did like absorb a lot of information that on the line like I just don't have time to think about you know I'm just trying to figure out if like this cake is going to bake or not I'm not trying to think about like baking science so being able to like um, you know go home and study that was like a helpful time where I was also I had the time for a while to actually like sit down and go through textbooks so it's a it's a there's pros and cons okay yeah I mean I definitely agree with you in that aspect Uh, people ask me who are in the industry who haven't gone to culinary school why I think it was important I honestly just say the connections I made um, because I grew up in Buffalo New York and if I didn't go to the CIA I don't know if I'd be working in New York City or if I'd be uh, gotten to travel out to California like it just opened Mm -hmm. so many doors for like my personal life I, I think that's the most important thing that I got from going to culinary school was the connections and the people I met and the different worldviews I got to surround myself with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I figured uh, ICE is like the same way. I mean, being in, in New York City and whatnot, is it um like, what? how is it like structured, I guess, like curriculum wise? Like, do you still have like a fundamentals class, I'm guessing? Yeah. And then do you get front of house experience and whatnot? Or what is it like? No there? front of house experience unless, um, so there's three different tracks. There's like the savory track, pastry track, and then there's like the, I think it's called management track. So I think for the management track, you do do some front of house stuff, but I was in savory. So you don't get any front okay. of house experience because it is a much shorter time that you're in school than at CIA. Um, so you do like a, yeah, fundamentals. I think they call it like the a mod one core or something where you're doing like knife skills um butchery vegetable trimming like stuff like that um and then you go into like technique so you spend like a day or two like learning how to all saute properly or like deep fry and blah 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 um then you go into cuisines of the world so it's mostly like french and italian predominantly and then you touch on some of the other cuisines um and then there's there's pastry Yep, there's one like month on pastry. And then the last one is kind of like random stuff. So like there's a day where you make sausages. There's a day where you do like market basking cooking. There's a day where you do some molecular stuff, kind of like random off bits and bits and pieces. Okay, yeah, that sounds cool. That sounds fun. Um, so after school, where did you end up going uh, working wise? So um, after culinary school, you have to do an externship. I externed at a place called Market Table, which is in West Village. It's kind of like an upscale new American restaurant. Um, I really love the chef uh, that I worked with there. His name is David Stanridge. He's now the executive, or no, he left, but he was the executive chef at Cafe Clover as well. Now he um, runs the cafe catering business. So yeah, like just Chef David also came from like a very different food background. He worked all these different jobs before going into food. So like, I just really appreciated all the advice that he gave me in terms of like going, going out and just exploring what is out there beyond restaurants was really awesome. Um, also had a really good team that worked with him, super, super supportive. So that was like a good foray. I think it, it was, it was good that I think I didn't go into fine dining right away. Cause it was such, it's such a stressful environment, whereas market tables like a little bit more calm. So, but mm-hmm. after that, um, I went to SPQR, moved to San Francisco, um, and then I came back to New York and I was at Aterra, um, which is like a two-star restaurant in Tribeca, and then um, was took a break to essentially work on my own businesses. And then I try every like other year or so to spend some time just like staging at restaurants that I admire. So in 2017, two years ago, went and spent some time over at Atelier Crane before coming back to New York and continuing work on my own things. 
Wow, that's that's quite the quite a schedule of things to do. Yeah. Um, I guess let's start with uh, Atera. Um, Atera for me was my first Michelin stage ever. Oh, uh, fun. Okay, I didn't know you. Where did you stage there? I staged there in, mm, I think it was, it was October of 2015 or oh, really? November of 2015. Oh, yeah, I was there. Maybe I didn't. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Because I, I, I don't know if you were there the day the day I went in. I don't know. Or it might have been of 2016. It was my it was my first year of culinary school. So, or it was after the Christmas break. It was somewhere around Christmas in 2015, 2016. Okay. Well, um, I was there in 2015 uh, through okay. the beginning of the year of 2016. So if you were there in 2015, we would have, I mean, I probably just didn't end up talking to you, but um, I, was, <laughs> I was there like wandering around, probably okay. talking to Chef Ronnie in like broken Danish. Okay. Awesome. So you, that's cool. Yeah. We, uh, the family meal we had that when I was there, it was like tacos. It was like a really... Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beans and whatnot. We had tea. Uh, anyway, so like that was my first Michelin stage. Uh, it was really cool, but it was definitely the most scared I've ever been in a kitchen. Oh, really? Um, Did you? I- well, yeah, because you come from culinary school, and I come from Buffalo. And literally two months ago, I just learned what Michelin was, and I was like, "All right, I want to go see what this is all about." Yeah. And you go into the two Michelin star kitchen, and like it's spotless, and everyone's just so in, in focus. I remember I was there, and I couldn't cut my uh, basil chiffonade small enough because I didn't have the knife skills at the time. No. Um, and I was just like, oh my god, this is so out of my league. Like they're gonna fire me. <laughs> yeah. So, um, it. I mean, it went. I thought it, I learned a lot, and it was, I was really happy to go there. I couldn't afford to live in the city and work there, um, but it was just more like just to see what a Michelin kitchen was like. But I really enjoyed it a lot, and the crew was cool. Um, so you were there, so it was. I obviously I really enjoyed the crew. Okay, good. Um, I love the Terra crew. I thought it was really great. I thought it yeah. had some really great strong female leaders as well, which is really important. Our CDC was mm-hmm. female. You probably talked to her, Yelena, and then the pastry chef, Valerie, who um, is actually now the executive suit over at Sunday in Brooklyn. Um, and I saw, I just saw her recently at, in, in LA. Um, also is like female. So it was like a really good, like nice, it was like a nice balance in the kitchen. Chef Ronnie is really good. And I like really thought that like the kitchen had a good dynamic. There's been some really problematic tensions in kitchens that I've worked in before. And I thought Atera, like Atera wasn't like a cakewalk. Like we had really long hours because we were a little understaffed and there was their own, Atera had its own problems. Everyone has its own problems, but in terms yeah. of kitchen teamwork, I thought it was one of the better places. Yeah, and if you could just explain like what the food is uh, coming out of the kitchen uh, for people who don't sure. know what a terror um, is. I mean, I can't speak to the menu right now because I haven't been recently, but um, Chef Ronnie Emborg, mm-hmm. he is originally from Copenhagen, um, and he, correct me if I'm wrong, he used to be at Geranium. Like, that was his restaurant in Copenhagen. Okay. Um, and so it's kind of like refined French-Danish cuisine, um, definitely like Nordic flavor, so you get a lot of kind of like way sour like kind of like these like interesting creamy but acidic notes um in his food but just like chef ronnie is like well known for very intricate and beautiful and like intense plating that takes forever as i'm sure you know <laughs> and like everyone who's worked at a tarot is like oh my god um you know like we used to joke that chef ronnie is like nature will bend to my will like everything <laughs> everything is like in a particular shape and he will like make it that shape, you know, if it's a circle or a triangle, like he will make it that shape, doesn't matter what shape it comes in. Um, so yeah, he's a, he's a fabulous chef. And like the food there is, I think it's like, 
it's just enough to keep you engaged the entire night, but it's never enough that you're like, oh, I'm tired. Like, I don't want to eat any more of this. Um, and I think a lot of the higher end, high caliber um, starred restaurants do a really good job of that. Is they don't give you too much food. It's always, I think, so when I worked at Italia Cranite, uh, the pastry chef there, Chef Juan, I think put this uh, really well, is that like, you know, at three to four bites, the the guest like wants just one more bite. That's the that's the feeling that you want them to have after every single course. They just want one more bite instead of if you give them six or seven bites and they're tired and they don't want it anymore, or maybe they feel satisfied, but they don't want any more. So you always have to kind of keep them like, a, oh, I wish I just had a little bit more. Um, like, and that's kind of how you feel the whole night. Kind of evil, <laughs> a little bit, a little right? bit. <laughs> yeah it's like oh my god like oh i want i want more and they know that you want more yeah. than it's like that oh, we're not gonna give <laughs> yeah. it to you that's funny though but yeah i, I enjoyed my day at Atera. um i haven't been able to eat there yet i do want to at some point but uh yeah it was just really cool i think the thing that impressed me the most being just starting out in culinary school i was 18 is when y'all clean the kitchen uh it was like you're, you're all like a machine like I remember it was just everyone started at one spot and it was scrubbing and then drying and then polishing and you just went through the whole kitchen. It was I've never seen anywhere mm-hmm, clean like mm-hmm. that where I worked. I was like, oh, like this was like, like I was like, wow, this is like what professional yeah. cooks do. Um, and, and so that was. I was also was like, cool. it was nice that everybody actually like helped each other instead of just like go off and like kind of clean their own random places. Everyone kind of goes in a line is like a big deal for sure. Hmm. Yeah, it was almost as it was just like the kitchen all belonged to mm-hmm. you. Um, like every, it was like everyone's kitchen, not just like someone had this spot or that spot. Um, and what about working in an open kitchen? Like, how was that? Like, I know because you all you all prepped downstairs and then went upstairs. Like, how did you enjoy that one? Like, was it nerve wracking or like what, um, what were your thoughts I mean, on it? I think it's great to have a production kitchen and to have like an open kitchen, right? Because you can you don't have to like worry about just having so much stuff like you wouldn't want the production kitchen and the open kitchen to be one thing because there's just too much stuff around that you have to keep clean like um i don't know if you came early enough in the day to see this but when one of the early things that we do around like 10 oh, 11 a.m is like everybody goes upstairs and also help we have to clean the the open kitchen and we clean it like more intensely than the downstairs kitchen and everything has to be polished everything has to be shined because it's guest facing and it's just like you wouldn't want mm-hmm. to like or, or they're shining the copper pans like you don't want to do that in your production kitchen because you just need to like churn out like a giant thing of like onion jus, you know, like that that pan doesn't need to be shined. So like having a little bit of separation yeah. is nice just to like minimize how much work you're doing and make it a little bit more efficient. Um, I think what was difficult about the Terra setup is that it's on two floors. So we either had to take an elevator or we had to go up the stairs. And if you've ever seen one of the servers come down the stairs with like thousands of dollars of wine glasses, you're like, oh my God, if she, <laughs> if she trips or whatever, like obviously if we have insurance, but yeah, like that was not ideal. So that was like not great, yeah. but if it was on one floor, it would be a lot easier. Um, and I yeah. think like that would be like my ideal scenario is being able to have one area where you can work and do your thing and like kind of also have a reprieve from the guests and one area where you do have to be on and you get to be really intimate and you get to engage with the people that you're serving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought it was a cool setup uh, where I worked in Buffalo. Um, the fine dining restaurant I worked at was also mm-hmm. two floors. So I understand the, the pain of going <laughs> up and down stairs. You're like, oh my God. Day. It's, yeah, um, it's pretty, mm-hmm. 
so what was uh what was working at um, Atelier Creme like? It was really different. It's not an open kitchen, so that's like nice because at least when you're plating, you have you don't have to be so quiet. Actually, one of the funny things that happened a lot at Atera is that sometimes whoever was expediting, Ronnie, be like shh. You're, she's, you're like yelling but like at the same time they have to yell so the cooks can hear them and then but then the guests like can hear them mm-hmm. too um so that was nice um it was just like a really different vibe pastry was also had its own kind of like situation so we didn't get to interact as much um and yeah like it was just different vibe um i really like really enjoyed my Atera family so i'm very biased but italian crime was a really good experience got to see dominique every night um also like because she has had so much press it was interesting like learning how to kind of cook in a kitchen um every day when there's like tons of cameras around all the time like almost every day there was like either okay. was there like munchies was there or some like you know whatever some publication was there filming and so being able to walk through that being able to do interviews on the fly if they want to pull you aside being able to do your work while not tripping on their cameras and lights and whatever was also like a challenge in and of itself so it was a good learning experience that way okay uh i think my question for you is one that i know i had um a lot and still have so um I know a lot of young younger cooks or cooks who are trying to get into these restaurants that you've worked in. Uh, some of these are like dream restaurants for people. Is how did you manage to um, how did you manage not only to get in but to like sustain yourself in terms of like living expenses and whatnot? Because mm-hmm. that's like a real thing that drives a lot of people away from be, like wanting to achieve their goals in these restaurants. Like what what like I guess what was your mindset or mentality? Yeah, and how did I you mean, make it work? I think- this is like the biggest challenge facing our industry right now. Um, I'll be a friend that I had kind of a different path than everyone else. So when I worked at Atera, I was on a scholarship. So I was getting paid uh, like higher than normal wages because I was getting paid essentially what my old job was paying me. Um, it was through the Bacusa okay. Or Foundation. Um, so like you give them your pay stubs from what like it was, I had been working at a startup, uh, like a tech startup for a while. And they match whatever pay you're getting receiving there um, and like let you go work in the restaurant for however long you want. So that was like a different scenario. So really? at least I could like kind of reasonably sustain myself living in New York City. But when I was working at Market Table, um, as, as you know, like externships aren't paid. So it was really like, Mm-hmm. I was in student debt from Columbia. I was in student debt from culinary school. I was working a job, you know, 12 hours a day and not getting paid. Um, and it was like, I was just using my savings. I was asking my parents for money. Um, my now husband, boyfriend at the time was like supporting me. It was like a mix of like basically asking people for help because there's like no other way to make money. Um, so I don't think it's a sustainable, the way it's set up right now isn't sustainable. And I really don't believe in it. And so like, I mean, we could talk about this later but like one of the big things that I feel I've been working on is like if I hire people how do I make sure that I'm paying them a living wage how do I make sure that even if they come trail that they're getting paid you know or if they come volunteer Mm -hmm. and they're not getting paid it's only for a certain amount of time and at least they're getting fed sort of thing like what are these things that I can do so I can like set a better example in the industry um I think the hardest thing for me is that coming from a background where I was making good money in management consulting, I really had to readjust my standard of living. There's like no really easy or better other way to do it is like, I couldn't buy the things I wanted to buy anymore. And I don't really buy a lot of stuff to start with. So it was like, Oh, instead of buying the organic food for myself to eat at home, like I'm going to buy non-organic, you know, or like I'm going to downgrade my apartment Mm -hmm. or like, 
my my suitcase broke, but I guess I'll just lug around this broken suitcase for the next six months because I don't have a hundred dollars to go buy a new suitcase, right? Like just like little things like that. Yeah. Um, and you know, anyway, um, it's like it's a terrible situation. So I don't think that we should put the next generation uh, in like through it. So I'm like very, very, very passionate about talking about like how we can fix the problem. And I think a lot of restaurants are at least yeah, at least some of the restaurants that are helmed by more responsible people are starting to take notice as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you want to start talking about it now, I mean, I think it's a good segue. I was listening to the David Chang podcast. He had on um, the two chefs from uh, Joe Mm -hmm. Beef. And a lot of their conversation was based around, um, you know, exactly this. Like, what do we do? Because, you know, a lot of cooks uh, like us are starting to realize that maybe this isn't what is best for Mm -hmm. us in the long term. But then it comes down to, like, do the restaurants have to cut back then on, like, their extravagant plating? um the restaurants come back because a lot of these places have you know externs or stages coming to them every day to help them out and it's not it's i don't want it to make it sound like these restaurants are evil and they're like like people are willingly doing this to learn they know what they're signing up for um but it's just weird to think of like what michelin dining will look like if we paid every if people were paid more fairly and i guess i guess like what are your thoughts on it like what do you think the industry goes from here or where do you think it should be going for sure in high-end dining is that you have so many externs it's you have such an insane amount of free labor um when i i mean when i was at atera we had at least one or two stages per day and that's like we only had like seven Mm -hmm. people on staff so that's like a good chunk of our workforce for free you know um and so you come to expect that and those people otherwise would be getting paid you know those aren't like some random person you pulled off the street. Those are like skilled workers. Even if you didn't have fine dining experience, you were still like a CIA student, you know, like you had uh, like techniques and skills. Yeah. Um, so I think realistically, if we are all started to pay people properly, which I think we should, then especially the higher end restaurants will have to really get be conscious about their margins because the, the amount of waste that goes on in those restaurants is absurd. Um, I've seen it at every single restaurant. There's one notable restaurant when I worked at SPQR, their margins are so, so good because like Chef Matt is a genius and he like, I mean, he just runs his food program really tight. I've never seen anything like it. That's the only starred restaurant that I've ever been to that like has margins that good. Everyone else is so wasteful because they can be, they don't have to care about their, um, they don't have to care about their food margins because they have so much free labor to offset it. Mm. Um, and I think that's bad for the environment, of course, but also it's like just myopic and just kind of stupid. So I think hopefully as the tides start turning, people will start thinking of like, oh, you know what? Instead of steaming all these crabs and then throwing away all that crab juice, which literally we did every day at Aterra, like we could save all of that and make like a crab reduction and do something with it. I don't know. Like you would have to adjust the mm-hmm. menu and some, there are compromises to be made, right? Maybe that's not what the chef wants to put on the menu, but like, say la vie, like, like how, how do you make it work? Um, I think just like the higher end restaurants right now, they're kind of at the, like, I will do it at the whim of my fancy. Like I'll do whatever I want. Um, and the reality is like, we are doing it at the expense of other people's livelihoods and we can't do that for much longer. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of why I got into uh, food management or like food, I, whatever. Like I got away from the, of Michelin because of that. Um, there's still a part of me 
uh, where there's a, like a, a passion burning where it's just like, I want to just go into a kitchen and, you know, work and learn and do all this cool food items. And I'd love to have my own Michelin starred restaurant one day and get James Beard awards. And, you know, I think that whole system, and I've talked about this on podcasts before for me, it was like, it's the whole system's based on other people's opinions to begin with, uh, like Michelin dining and the James Beard awards. And it's not, I don't think it's bad to be awarded, but I know for a long time, my whole career goal was to get a Michelin star, no matter what. Mm -hmm. And my whole career, I realize, is based on the opinion of, of a rating company. Like, mm -hmm. rate, there's something fundamentally wrong, but a lot of cooks, you know, follow that path. And a lot of the cooks that listen to my podcast follow that path. And, you know, obviously, everyone has their different reasons of getting into cooking and whatnot. So then I, like, started to look and, like, I was like, I'm just worth more than the 14 or $15 I'll get paid. And I know to a lot of people it comes off as I think I'm, maybe I, I think I'm too good to work in Michelin or I, or I'm just not good enough. And that's why I'm doing it. I, I could, I really do feel I could survive in a Michelin kitchen. I'm, I'm, the fine dining restaurants in Buffalo are no different in terms of stress and whatnot, you know? And mm -hmm. I just think I just didn't see the value in putting my years into something that isn't going to repay me financially. And, I'm just going to be maybe a cog in the machine, maybe get lucky because of an award and maybe, or not get lucky, but work hard and get awarded. But if I do the food that I want to do, maybe not even get rewarded. It's just, I don't know. There's a lot of variables that I feel like you can't really control. And at the end of the day, if you don't make it, you ended up just like working on the line for however long. And it's just very detrimental to your health and to your Absolutely. mental well being. And I don't know. That's, that's why I got away from it almost. And I still love it. I've, I've been to Michelin restaurants, but back there that feels like I felt and it bothered me a little bit and mm -hmm. so I don't know if I like enjoy it as much anymore I still like to go for like inspiration and see what chefs are doing but now I also am conscious of like what people could be feeling in these kitchens so yeah um... it's an issue I, I think an, a restaurant where I went to recently that has a star that I did not feel really upset about because I could it was an open kitchen so I saw the cooks but their plating and the way they did food was contra mm, in yeah New York City. I haven't been uh, I went there and like the tasting menu is $87, I think it's at now, or $89. Yeah, it's and, affordable. Yeah, it's affordable. The plating is beautiful, but it's not like, you know, it's detailed, but it's not to the point where you know someone was back there and all they were doing all day was, you know, fluting asparagus or whatever. Not, But um, <laughs> it was just very like, it, it almost was like, yeah, we get it. Like, we know that this food has a certain reputation, so we're going to make it affordable. We're going to make it delicious with the ingredients that we can keep in your price range and I love the meal and I, it was my favorite meal in New York so far. So, I mean, I don't know. I think that's what fine dining is going to, I think it's what fine dining should be leaning towards more. And I think restaurants like Contra should be getting more praise for their lower price points, but also, but also their attention to detail and their strive to kind of get, you know, the diners, the same kind of experience. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I mean, do you think there's a point like in David Chang's podcast, he was saying where we cut back on fine dining. Like, do you think that point's ever going to happen or do you think it just gets more and more um, important out there? Uh, I think it's happening slowly, but surely. I think people are looking for different types of experiences. I think um, like as, as I've started doing more, uh, I've been doing pop-ups for a long time, but um, as I've been doing more like immersive and kind of like interdisciplinary food plus other types of art sort of experiences, I think people are starting to get tired of the same old like stuffy, you know, like stuffy atmosphere. People don't want that anymore. Um, mm -hmm. 
of course, there's always going to be a subset of like old people who, who want to go. I, I mean, I, I say this as a joke, but I kind of mean it at the same time. There is like a subset of people who want to go to restaurants and spend their money so they can be mean to people and feel good about themselves. Like that, those kind of people will always exist and they will always patronize the more expensive restaurants, like whatever. You have a $500, like whatever the fuck, taco or something. There's like a $25,000 taco or something somewhere like, I don't know where, some like stupid hotel. And like, there's always going to be like some kind of person who goes and buys it. But like, for the most part, I think public opinion, like people don't want that sort of like really ridiculous in your face sort of stuff. People want something that's thoughtful, something that connects with them, something they feel like, you know, they're having like an experience beyond just like eating good food. Because like the reality is like, unless you're someone like one of us who's like actually going in and really thinking about the food, people go to a restaurant the, the thing is like food was good or bad or sometimes it's outstanding or it was terrible but like they don't know like they don't remember exactly what they ate it was more about like how they felt and so people mm-hmm. are getting more fine um, fine-tuned to like how do I feel what are the experience food experiences that make me feel a certain way how do I keep revisiting those instead of chasing down Michelin stars I think Michelin stars are losing its relevance and they're trying to regain that by diving into more of like I don't want to say lowbrow but some of the less expensive places because those are the places that people are patronizing you know no one's like running off to to go to three Michelin star restaurants all the time because a they can't but also like people don't care as much yeah I agree what uh what are your thoughts on um I guess the idea that cooks at some point have to go through a kitchen that's tough on them and that breaks them down in order to be better cooks. Like what it, cause I know like for me, another big reason why I'm doing the podcast and whatnot is to focus on the mental health aspect, maybe not up front in terms of like saying it every podcast, but like, you know, having these conversations where we talk about equity with cooks and mm-hmm. you know, how we get treated. What are your thoughts on the people who think that you need to go work for free and be almost abused and I'm not saying restaurant, not all restaurants do that, but there are the restaurants out there that do abuse their stagiaries. Like what are your thoughts on that idea that we won't have as strong of a cooking force or workforce because we're going to be more, uh, I guess, strict with how we treat our cooks and better on how we treat our cooks. I mean, I think all of that, all the people that say you need to be abused, people need to yell at you, blah, blah, blah. All that is like complete bullshit. I think those people mm-hmm. are confused. They're from an old era where they used to get hazed and they thought that was the right way. And they're so brainwashed that they don't know a better way to lead. Leaders do not abuse their compatriots and expect them to produce good results. Like literally no other industry says that. Um, <laughs> that maybe the food industry and maybe lawyers. And like, there's plenty of jokes about lawyers for like maybe that reason. And investment bakers, which I mean, we all know how public sentiment feels about investment bakers. But um like, I think the problem is that we don't do a good job of uh, rewarding people um, who are being good leaders in the kitchen and punishing people who aren't good leaders in the kitchen because we're so focused on like, oh, if you have stars, then like you're good, you're good, whatever. Like being a sh- really great chef and being a really good like leader are two different things. It's kind of like, you know, look at uh there's been some scandals in music and entertainment recently if uh, mm-hmm. if you haven't noticed and being an amazing musician being a really great artist uh doesn't mean that you're a good person and i think the public is starting to grapple with the fact that there's a disparity there and there's a difference and i think in kitchens that we also have to recognize that you can 100 percent respect chefs who are incredible chefs and they're just artistic talents um but they're not good people 
And those yeah. two things are 100% not the same. And just because you respect them as a chef doesn't mean you have to go work for them, nor do they deserve your talent. Uh, the way I see it, and I, like, I get yelled at all the time by like old stodgy people, is like, I'm not going to work in a kitchen if they're not going to respect me because they don't deserve my time and they don't deserve my talent and they don't deserve my energy. And I feel like mm -hmm. every graduate who cares about themselves and respects themselves should feel the same. Sure, you might not have the exact same, you know, um, like years of experience as some of these people do, but that doesn't mean that you're worthless. And therefore, they shouldn't treat you as if you are. And if they, you were so worthless and they didn't need you, then they wouldn't ask you to come to the kitchen. They, the truth is they desperately need you. And like they're trying to hide it by being rude to you. If you walked out, it's like if the dishwasher walked out. You can't treat your dishwasher like shit and expect them to not walk out one day. Because if they do wash, walk out, then you're all fucked right? For yeah. It's the same thing. So if you're not going to be an asshole to your dishwasher, why would you be an asshole to your stage? Because you can't have the stage walk out either, or you can't have your line cook walk out. So it's like, it's, I don't know, it's a pretty simple, like, give respect and get respect. If you treat your, like, people well, then they will treat you well. I, I feel like my husband and I, when running our nonprofit, we treat our staff really, really well. We pay them as best we can. We don't pay the highest rates. Mm -hmm. um, we don't pay the highest rates in the, uh, sorry. There you go. Sorry. <laughs> um, we don't pay the highest rates in the industry, but we pay decently well, you know what I mean? Um, and it, like, they work really hard. They always put their asses on us for us. And, like, and we have a great time and we love working together. They change around their schedule so they can work our events. Like they're willing to go the extra mile because like, you just like treat them with respect. It's really simple. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And I have this conversation with cooks, and then there's still cooks who joke. At, like, they're like, they agree with me, and they're like, yes, I agree. But then there's like a joke at the end, but like, you still need to be tougher. You still need to go through this to be successful and whatnot. Being tough and, doesn't mean being an asshole. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I know. I agree. Um, and it's, I'm actually, the podcast coming out with tomorrow is about being empathetic with, like, being an empathetic cook, like, thinking about what others you know, are going through because there's, I don't know. I've always been fascinated. Like whenever I've been treated wrong in a kitchen or been treated disrespectfully, I just think about like the issues and like the, the, the anxiety that maybe that person has right now. And where did that stem from? And where, did, like, why did someone treat them like that? And like, where does it, like, where does it all go to? And mm -hmm. I don't know. I just feel like I think a little bit differently than some of the people in the industry. Honestly, we, I feel like we think the same way in terms of being empathetic and whatnot, but it it's, it's just a mystery to me right now as to how to start to like change it. I mean, I'm trying my best with the podcast and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And like I said, and I listened to Justin Connor. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. Mm -hmm. um, but he said it perfectly in an episode that I like listened to on the way back home yesterday was that he loves kitchen culture and whatnot, but there's also a point where things need to be evolve and change. And like, I totally agree with him and I agree with uh, chef Kwame on watch. I read his book and, his story and his thoughts in the industry. I just think it's important to have a change happen because I don't, I don't, I don't get why so many people would be paid so little, but offer so much to the mm -hmm. restaurants. And it, it's bothersome to me. And it's something that I try to talk to people about. And it's just, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to talk about because this is someone's livelihood and it's very hard to change something yeah, like absolutely. that. Absolutely, But at the same time, I mean, I think, it is up to our generation to change it because you're not going to be able to change the minds of people who are like 40, 50, 60 that are working now in their kitchens. But like you can change your kitchen. 
you know, your future kitchen and you can change the people that you talk to every day. Yeah. I do want to stay on this topic, um, but I also want to know more about what you do. So I guess my last question regarding this is like, in terms of going out to eat, in terms of going out to support Michelin restaurants, when we all know that there's someone back there who's stodging and not getting paid, like do like, but we all know, like, I think it's very honorable to have a chef, you know, work very hard to put their thoughts on a plate and be able to express themselves. Like, what are your thoughts on going out to eat Michelin? Like, is that something we should stop for a while in order to like be like, Hey, this is what we want in an industry. Or, like what, I guess, what is our responsibility as diners, uh, especially ones in the industry who know what's uh, going on? I think on? it's important to go to, to go support patron places that are paying their front and house staff and their back of house staff equally. Um, whether that's part of their overall mission or maybe you just go ask them. But um, I think that's like a huge disparity that needs to be like addressed first and foremost, in, especially in fine dining industries because the bake gap only widens as you go up the ladder. Um, one of the things that mm. I instituted recently for my business is that everybody just gets paid the same. Literally, everybody gets paid from, from the dishwasher to my sous chef. Like, well, I don't get paid anything, but the, all my staff gets paid the same. Um, so like you as a diner, you can know that you know, you don't have your, your server, not that servers aren't important, but should they be making $30 an hour versus like the cooks that are making $10 an hour, right? So like, yeah, so yeah. I think that's really important to be asked like how, who is getting paid what, how things are getting paid, how tips work. Um, the tip thing situation is quite contentious in New York. Um, we can probably don't have time to get into that, but that's a whole nother situation. So how do you support restaurants that are appropriately redistributing their tips? Um, so yeah, I think that's like number one. And then also just going to like places that I feel if you follow them on social media and you feel like they have a bigger mission, like, I think that's really important because at the end of the day, like we can all have missions, but we all need money. So like just putting your money to places that actually are going to use that money for a bigger purpose. And it's not just, oh, especially places that aren't backed by like a huge other enterprise, like going to places that are going to, you know, do something for the community, whether it's donate to a nonprofit or they have public programming or they use that money and do like subsidized dinners for people who can't afford it every once in a while. Like to feel that your money is going mm -hmm. to something other than just one fancy experience for one night. Okay. Yeah, I agree. Okay, this will be part one of a two part podcast. Uh, I guess if you just want to leave us with what it is you do, um, in terms of work and your organizations and all that. And we'll be touching on that in the next um, podcast. So again, I'm Jenny Dorsey. I'm a professional chef, writer, and artist based in New York City. I run a nonprofit uh, culinary production studio called Studio Atau. That's A-T-A-O. And we put together different content and live experiences that are all focused around social impact topics. So for example, our, one of our flagship series is called Asian in America, and it talks about the Asian American identity through virtual reality, food, poetry, and cocktails. Um, we have an upcoming series that's debuting in New York next month um, called Hidden, which uses food, virtual reality, and immersive dance to talk about cognitive dissonance and self-discovery. So you can find out more about me at jennydorsey.co.co and my nonprofit is at Studio Atau, Studio Atau, A-T-A-O.org. All right, before we uh, get on to the conclusion of the episode, this is just an ad for Anchor. Uh, Anchor has been an app that has allowed me to podcast for free and, you know, get these episodes out to y'all and they let me do the voice messaging and I love sharing anchor because they've just given me such a great platform to discuss with you guys don't want to waste too much of your time so here we go 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So there you have it, the interview with Chef Jenny Dorsey. I really hope you all enjoyed this because, like I said, this is just an important topic to talk about, and it's something that we really need to get into and discuss. And I, you know, I can't think of a of a better uh, person to talk to besides her because she's really just paving the way for what it means to be a chef and being able to do more than just, you know, being a chef, like actually getting involved in different things. And I'm so excited to share her story on the next uh, coming episode a little bit later in the summer when we get to sit down again and talk again. Uh, but like I said, Chef, good luck with everything you're doing. Good luck with the move. Uh, thank you so much for coming on and thank you for just giving me the time to, you know, just talk about something that wasn't even in the questions, but we both felt passionate about. And thank you, Line Cook Nation, for listening as usual. Um, you all make everything. I, I don't know what I would do without this podcast. Uh, there's so many different conversations I get to have, so many cool people I get to meet. And it's all because you listen in every day. So please just know that it means a ton that every time you listen and just thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. Uh, we'll see you on the next solo podcast and have a good week of service. Hey, Lion Nation, this is just a quick reminder about the Anthony Bourdain episode. We have less than two weeks for the deadline for you to send me your voice messages on why Anthony Bourdain meant so much to you as a cook. And I'm really excited to share this episode and I've gotten some uh, messages so far, but I know there's so many more out there who have been affected by Anthony Bourdain who haven't sent a message in yet. And I just really want to show the industry what the Line Cook Nation can do when we come together and put ourselves uh, together and just share why someone's so important and so much to us. So if you could please take the time to either go in the show notes of this episode, click on the link that says Anchor Messages at the bottom of all the notes, or if you could download the Anchor app, look up Line Cook Thoughts and send a voice message to me, you'll find the button in the top right corner of my uh, page on Anchor. And just send me a one-minute message on why he meant a ton to you. I mean, and I just want this. I, I mean, this podcast could be three hours long for all I care. I just want everyone's input into this podcast. And I just want to share it out on social media and on the, all the podcasting sites. And just give it a sense of why Anthony Bourdain meant so much to so many cooks. Uh, because I feel like he had a responsibility of bringing cooks together. And I can't see of a better way to commemorate him after the year he, after having been a year gone now on June 8th. So please Uh, Send me your voice messages and let me know why Anthony Bourdain meant a ton to you like he did for me.